Section thirty two of Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Memoirs of Miss Sidney Biddulph by Francis Sheridan. Volume three continued. June the twenty sixth. Miss Birchill was in too much haste to communicate her joy to us to defer the giving an account of what passed between her and Mr. Falkland yesterday evening. She hurried to us last night at almost ten o'clock. He came to her house, she said, at six, the hour she had appointed him, and looked so enchantingly. She herself was dressed out very elegantly to receive him, and I thought looked really charming. Her countenance was so lightened up with joy that she did not appear the same woman. She had endeavoured, she said, to compose herself for this interview, and had tried to assume something of dignity, but it all vanished when her conqueror approached, and the tumult of her heart so entirely banished all recollection and presence of mind that she was not able to tell me in what manner she received him. She only knows, she says, that having snatched up her little boy, who stood by her and hung on her gown, she put him into his father's arms, and bidding the babe thank him for his goodness, she burst into tears. Mr. Falkland tenderly embraced the child, not without a visible emotion of countenance, and having gently set him down again, he placed himself by Miss Birchall's side. She was still sobbing. "'Those generous tears, madam,' said he, taking her by the hand, reproach me too much. I have not deserved this tenderness. I cannot look upon you nor that dear boy without blushing. But you have forgiven me. It shall be the study of my life to make you both happy. Oh, madam, continued Miss Birchall, what an exquisite joy must such a declaration give me from the beloved of my soul. I wrung his hand, "'Oh, sir, you are too, too good. "'What return can I make you? "'One thing only say to me, "'that you do not offer me a very reluctant hand, "'and then I shall be the happiest of women.' "'Mr. Falkland paused a little while, "'and then with a noble frankness replied, "'You know, my dear Miss Birchall, "'with what an excess of passion I have ever loved Mrs. Arnold. Had no such woman existed, you would have been my choice, preferably to any other. But when I first knew you, I looked upon myself as bound to her, though at that time I had never seen her. My knowledge of her afterwards confirmed me hers. I made no secret of this to you, and you may remember what my declarations to you were, even at the time my hopes were frustrated. I have loved her fervently ever since, even in the arms of a husband I adored her, and I will be candid enough to own to you that, as my attachment to her has, during all that time, estranged me from you, so should I still, had I the least hopes of succeeding, have persisted in my suit. But she has cut off all hope, she has declared she never can be mine and at the same time has represented my obligations to you in so strong a light that I am convinced I ought to be yours. And let me own, madam, you who are generous and know what it is to love, 
will pardon a declaration which I durst not make to any other woman. To you I will confess that Mrs. Arnold is arbitress of my fate, and in approving myself to her I do so to my own conscience. I do not therefore, though my actions have been guided by her yield, with reluctance to her will, her virtue, her religion, and enlarged mind, have only dictated to me what my own reason tells me I ought to do. I have been a slave to a hopeless passion too long. I am now resolved to struggle with my chains. You, madam, must assist me in breaking them entirely, and I make no doubt but that time, joined to my own efforts, and aided by your sweetness of disposition, your tenderness and admirable sense, will enable me to conquer what I must now call a weakness, and make the triumph equally happy for us both. But remember, madam, I never see Mrs. Arnold more. Tis for your peace's sake, as well as my own, that I make this a preliminary to our marriage. I will, when you shall vouchsafe me the honour of your hand, receive it, if you please, from Lady Biddulph and as I presume it will be agreeable to you to have the ceremony entirely private, that I may, for our dear boy's sake, present you rather as my acknowledged wife than as my new-made bride, I will, with the utmost speed and secrecy, have such disposition made as shall be suitable to my condition and your own merit. I should like, after we are united, if you have no objection to it, to pay a visit for a while to an estate I have in Ireland, which I have never yet seen, and which I intended to have looked at, if this event, this happy event, and he kissed my hand, had not taken place. Penetrated as I was, pursued Miss Birchall, with a sense of the generosity and openness of his heart, I could not forbear raising his hand to my lips. He tenderly withdrew it from me, as if abashed at my condescension. He then turned the discourse to less interesting subjects, and after three delightful hours spent with me, took his leave, not without first having fixed on Wednesday, next Wednesday, to be the blessed day that is to make him mine for ever. "'Happy, happy may you be,' said I. "'You must be happy.' but let me see you once again before you are mrs falkland there are not many hours to come before that name will be yours my dear madam said she and patted my bosom with her hand i hope all is well here she looked earnestly in my face and then added but you have a noble heart tis an honest one i hope said i a little disconcerted at her manner why did she address me thus, my dear? I hope I did not discover anything in my behaviour as if I repined at her good fortune. If I did, far be such a wretched meanness from the heart of thy friend. Was it not my own act to make Miss Birchall the happy woman she now thinks herself? Yet I own there is something in Mr. Falkland's conduct which has raised my esteem to admiration. Oh, may his future days be blessed! else shall I indeed be wretched. My mother told Miss Birchall it would give her inexpressible satisfaction 
to bestow her in marriage on mr falkland and desired she would let her know to-morrow at what time and place the ceremony was to be performed she answered at her own house as she could be nowhere else so private and that mr falkland would engage for the purpose a clergyman a particular friend of his and fellow collegian on whose discretion he could rely miss birchell's spirits were too much exhilarated to let her think of rest she stayed with us till it was very late and having taken occasion to mention how grieved she was at the thoughts of losing my society and of the necessity mr falkland expressed himself under of never seeing me more my mother took that opportunity of gravely entering into the subject of matrimonial duties she highly applauded mr falkland's resolution on that head and told miss birchell it ought exceedingly to enhance his merit towards her let this be a memorandum to you my dear madam said she how sacred the bond is to be held that is now going to unite you he will not you see run the hazard of being tempted even in thought to swerve from that faith which he is going to plight to you your situation is delicate and it will require the utmost prudence and circumspection on your part to secure such an interest in his heart as he now seems inclined to give you it is not on your personal charms that you are to rely for subduing or preserving the affections of such a man as he is they alone you see are not able to effect this it is to mr falkland's honour rather than his love that you are now obliged for the justice he has done you never let this be out of your thoughts be grateful but let your gratitude have dignity in it and by your behaviour convince your husband that honour was with you a first motive to wish this union love will then come in with a better grace as a secondary inducement the freedom of my mother's observations and instructions i was not surprised at because she always speaks her mind but the emphasis with which she delivered herself was unusual miss birchell expressed herself as obliged to her and joined entirely in her opinion i could perceive however she was not pleased with the lecture when miss birchell was gone my mother told me she thought it necessary to speak as she had done miss birchell said she is not quite the girl i took her for so much modesty and reserve i thought i never had met with in a young creature before when she used to speak of mr falkland it was with affection indeed but with such a nice decorum as convinced me of the innocence and purity of her heart but of late i have observed she has been less delicate in her expressions of tenderness such passionate flights have sometimes broken from her as i did not think becoming in a young woman with which indeed almost offended me and this night her joy has been ungoverned great reason she has for joy tis true but there are some considerations which ought to have made her chasten that joy with a sober and at least seemingly moderate satisfaction she loves mr falkland 
but let her beware of disgusting a man of his sense by too strong an expression of her fondness my mother's observation and her uncommonly forcible manner of expressing it struck me prodigiously it is true i had made the same remarks myself but as you know she is not extremely penetrating and in general but a superficial observer i was the more surprised at what she said miss birchill's behaviour must have been formerly very different from what it is now to have made my mother so sensible of the change some considerations she said ought to have made her chasten her joy perhaps she meant no more than that the young lady in the midst of that joy had upon reflection cause for humiliation i hope she did not think that her gaiety on this desired event affected me who had so warmly promoted it my mother is too open not to give the full meaning of her thoughts this may be only the suggestion of my own fancy yet it has mortified me i had but little rest last night and rose this morning by daylight to throw together in writing the above particulars june the twenty seventh miss birchill came not to us till late this evening pleasure danced in her eyes i whispered to her we rejoice with you dear madam sincerely rejoice at the approaching felicity but our present state will not suffer us to keep pace with you in that gaiety however justifiable it may be from the cause restrain yourself a little my mother will not think you kind as we are so soon to part with you she smiled and thanked me for the hint immediately composed her features to such a decorum i will not call it demureness that it was impossible to discover she was agitated by any extraordinary emotion i own i was amazed at the command she so suddenly assumed over her countenance i was glad however she did so that my mother might not have the fresh cause of dislike towards her she told us that mr falkland had settled a thousand pounds a year on her and that too without ever having informed himself of the state of her fortune for in the hurry of her thoughts she had neglected to mention it to him generous man whispered i to myself she then with great gravity applied herself to my mother and told her she hoped for the honour of her presence the next morning at her own house where the ceremony was to be performed before no other witnesses but her ladyship and the gentlewoman who had been mr falkland's housekeeper and that the following day they purposed retiring to mr falkland's seat in hertfordshire and after a short stay there to set out for ireland my mother commended mr falkland's diligence for having so suddenly disposed everything for this important event and told our friend she would not fail to attend her at the appointed time miss birchill's behaviour was extremely composed she either really was or affected to be extremely sorry at parting with me she could not stay long with us she said as she had many things still to settle in the remaining part of that evening on taking leave of me i shall not see you again worthiest of women said she at least for many months but my love my respect and my gratitude towards you will be as lasting as my life you shall hear often from me 
and be so good as sometimes to tell me I am not forgotten. She embraced me with tears in her eyes, but I thought she tripped downstairs to her chair as if her heart was very light. My mother liked her deportment. She said she believed the flightiness of her behaviour before was owing to her being quite intoxicated with the suddenness of her joy, or so unexpected a turn of fortune but that since she had time for recollection she had recovered her wonted bashful and sober air with which she used to be so delighted my mother says she will contrive to carry a rich white brocade gown with her in order to slip it on at miss birchall's house for she would not on any consideration appear in mourning on this joyful occasion you know the reverence she has for omens june the twenty eighth the important event is over my cecilia miss birchall is now mrs falkland my mother is just returned and saw the nuptial knot tied the lady she said looked very lovely and it was easy to observe she gave her hand with all her heart mr falkland's behaviour was polite and unconstrained but his attention to his bride was more gallant than tender, and his whole deportment was that of a man who seemed to endeavour at acquitting himself with a good grace of an act of duty rather than of inclination. The latter part of the observation is mine, not my mother's, but I collected it from certain little particulars which she related to me in her own way, without drawing any inference from them. He thanked her in a most respectful manner for the honour she had done him, and for her former friendship to Miss Birchall, but did not once mention my name. So much the better. I hope he will forget me. My mother is mighty alert on the occasion, and felicitates both herself and me on our having brought about this very important affair. She joined heartily with me in praying that the new married pair may be happy in each other. She is quite reconciled to Mr. Falkland. What a pity it was, said she, and stopped, then added, but everything is for the best. I understood her, but made no reply. They go out of town to-morrow morning, all happiness attend them. I expect Sir George will be quite outrageous about this marriage. My second refusal of his friend, with the addition of his now being wedded, through my persuasion, to a woman my brother never could endure, will, I fear, exasperate him beyond a possibility of reconciliation. I cannot help it. I have acted agreeably to the dictates of my duty. That must be my consolation. Life is in itself a warfare. My life has been particularly so. July the 8th. My mother is far from being well. Her spirits have been a little heightened for these few days past, but her disorder, I see, gains ground. The swelling in her legs is returning, and her rest at night quite broken. I am hourly habituating myself to think of her dissolution, or, in other words, am preparing myself for the worst evil that can now befall me. I hope I shall find myself equal to the trial. July the 10th. Here is a storm for you, my dear, a letter from Sir George. 
I wanted such a thing to rouse me from the almost lethargic dullness that was creeping on me. Mr. Falkland has acquainted him with his marriage. Pray observe his brotherly address. Mrs. Arnold, June the 6th, 1706. For I disclaim all relation to you. I have just now had a letter from Falkland wherein I am at once informed of your having finally rejected him, and of his being married to Miss Birchall. As for the first, your own folly be on your head. You will have time enough for repentance. But what in the name of blind infatuation could provoke you to urge the man to whom you owed such obligations to his destruction? You, I know, have done it. He could not be so mad but under your influence. You and my mother, I suppose, fancy you have done a righteous deed. But you have done what I am afraid poor Falkland will have reason to— I will suppress the shocking word that my indignation suggested. Why was not I made acquainted with this precious design of marrying my friend to that insinuating little viper? I might perhaps have prevented the mischief, for I cannot think if she had not imposed upon you that you would have pushed your chimerical notions of honour to such extremities. Perhaps you meant well, but it has ever been your peculiar misfortune, I think, to have your good intentions productive of nothing but evil. This last action, I fear, will be a severe proof of the truth of this observation. I warned you in time against this woman, but my advice has always been despised. I will say no more on the hateful subject. What is done is irrevocable, but I believe you will hardly be able to answer to it yourself, if you find that you have condemned one of the noblest fellows in the world to the arms of a prostitute. Lord bless me, my Cecilia, was there ever such a barbarian? With what an implacable aversion does he pursue this poor girl? But what does he mean by the odious epithet with which he closes this horrid letter? Sure Miss Birchall merits not that name. Her weakness in regard to Mr. Falkland cannot bring on her so detestable a charge. If George knows anything more of her character than I do, then why did he not tell me so before? It cannot be. His aversion to her makes him cruel and unjust. He says true. I should not indeed forgive myself if I were the means of making Mr. Falkland unhappy. And his observation would be dreadfully verified, that all my good intentions produce nothing but evil if this marriage should prove to be unfortunate. July the 20th. I have had a letter from Mrs. Falkland. She and her husband have arrived safely at his estate on the borders of the north of Ireland, within less than thirty miles of the capital. It is a pleasant part of the country, she says, but as Mr. Falkland has no house there, they have taken up their lodgings for the present at the house of his steward. Her letter is filled with declarations of the felicity she enjoys. She says she would not change her lot to be the greatest queen on earth. May she continue to deserve her happy fortune, and to render her husband as satisfied with his lot as she is with hers. Then shall I triumph over Sir George for his vile insinuations. 
I have heard from my good lady V, in answer to the letter I wrote her giving an account of Mr. Falkland's marriage. As he had not made her acquainted with his return to England, I knew not whether he had informed her of this particular, and I find he had not, as Lady V was a stranger to his former connection with Miss Birchill, with whom I have already told you she was acquainted, and that she entertained a very favourable opinion of her. She expressed no displeasure at the alliance, but said she supposed he married in a tiff upon my refusal of him, for which I gave her such reasons as I had before given Mr. Falkland, excepting those which related to Miss Birchill, which for both their sakes must now be no more mentioned. Lady V says she will not condemn the delicacy of my sentiments, though she owns her wish was that it could have been got over, as she is sure that Mr. Falkland can never be happy with any one but me. Here follows an interval of near two months in which nothing material occurred. September the 13th. The time approaches, my Cecilia, when thy friend shall be poor and destitute. I know thy generous heart will more than sympathise with me in my calamity, from the aggravating reflection that it is not in your power to assist me. The account you have given me of your husband's close disposition has too fully convinced me of this, nor should I have mentioned my apprehensions to you at this time, but that I am bound not to conceal a thought from the friend of my heart. Sir George has dropped all correspondence with us. I have nothing to expect from him, nor does that mortal live, yourself excepted, to whom I would on such an occasion be indebted. I have already sighed too often under the weight of obligations I could not repay. My mother is hastening apace towards a better world. She sees her end approaching with such a calmness, such a truly pious joy, as almost makes me ashamed of lamenting her loss. For what is it in me, my dear, but selfishness? Tis true, the loss of a tender parent, a faithful friend, at a time when all other comforts of life are fled, is an evil one could wish wholly to avoid, or at least postpone to the longest date possible. But when I consider her welfare, ought I to indulge myself in such a wish? Her life is already become a burden to her. Her infirmities are painful, and without hope of cure. She longs to be released, and to receive that reward of her righteousness which cannot be obtained on this side of the grave. If we had a friend who, in compassion to our wants or weakness, consented to live with us, though under the pressure of years and bodily pain, and that friend were invited to a remote country and an assurance of recovering health, of having youth renewed, and of possessing all the riches, power, honours, and accumulated pleasure that this world can bestow, should we not blush to own even a wish to detain him from such a station? What but a love of ourselves superior to that which we bear to our friend would suggest such a thought? How much more to be desired, then, is the change to which my mother looks forward with an assured hope. But there is something dismal in the idea of death. Tis only our prejudices makes it so. I have been endeavouring for many days past to familiarise it to my thoughts, and to consider death only as the name of a region through which my mother is to pass 
in order to get to that delightful country to which she is invited, and whither I shall assuredly follow her. Such is the present frame of my mind. Judge then, my sister, if this philosophy will not bear me up against the expected blow when it falls upon me. September the 15th "'Tis strange, my Cecilia, that this best of parents, who has always so tenderly loved me, expresses now not the least uneasiness at the forlorn condition in which she must soon leave me. Her thoughts are employed on higher objects, and she seems to have weaned herself from all worldly attachments. "'I am going from you, my daughter,' said she to me just now and have no other legacy to leave you but a parent's blessing. Your brother possesses all when I die. I wish you had the means of enjoying life with comfort, but you must be contented. See that you bear your lot as becomes you. I perceive your grief for the melancholy condition to which I am reduced, but added she smiling, I shall soon be released. Remember how David behaved on the death of that son whose life he had earnestly besought of his Maker. Let that serve you as an example, not to give yourself up to unprofitable sorrow. Bring up your children in the principles that I taught you, and God will take care of them, for I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging their bread." She said she found herself drowsy, and desired me to leave her for a while. I have left her, going to hope to get a little sleep. She breathes with so much difficulty that she cannot bear to lie down, and never gets any rest but by snatches, as she sits in an armchair, supported by pillows. How heavy and cast down do I feel in my spirits! But I know the worst, that is something. It is all over, and my mother, blessed woman, opens not her eyes again, but to a joyful resurrection. Oh, my dear, there is no terror in death when he seizes us not unprepared. I went into my mother's chamber about a half an hour after I had quitted it at her desire. I found her leaning back in her chair, her eyes shut, and a complacent air diffused over her face which made me hope that her slumber was sweeter and more profound than usual. I sat down by her to contemplate her benign countenance, and was some minutes before I discovered that she did not breathe. I took her hand, she had no pulse, and I soon found that the happy spirit had escaped from its house of clay. May I die the death of the righteous, and my latter end be like hers. No murmurings. No, no, my sister. I will be patience itself. End of section 32